Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today in the program we have Dakin Matthews. Hello, Dakin. Hi, good morning. Dakin, we are so happy to have you here. Dakin has decades of experience as a Shakespeare actor, as an actor on film and television. I'm not going to go through the bio because it is a long one, but some of his Shakespeare credits include Henry IV, All's Well That Ends Well, Measure for Measure, Winter's Tale, King Lear, Much Ado, Julius Caesar, and I imagine many, many more, Dakin. Well, um, not the canon. I'm not close to the canon. I have friends who have done the canon, but I wow. keep doing the same ones over and over. And he's also the author of Shakespeare Spoken Here. It's a book about how to speak and perform Shakespeare. He has taught all over the country uh, at American Conservatory Theater. He was one of the first, one of the founding members, I believe, of the acting company at Juilliard. And he is, are you professor of English at Cal State? in? Yes, Hale? yes. Well, when you retire from from teaching, you get a little emeritus, you get a little, get a little bad. You get a yeah. share a deputy badge as emeritus. <laughs> Dakin, thanks especially for carving out a little time to talk to us on a two-show day. You're currently appearing in the Lincoln Center production of Camelot. Yes, we're on Broadway. in Broadway. Yeah. Is it your first production of Camelot? Yes. In fact, I've never seen Camelot. Uh, Sarah, how have you managed to avoid it all this time? That's I know cool. it's hard to imagine. I uh, well, I, by staying busy, by <laughs> by not having a night off to to see any plays myself. Garrett, have you been in Camelot? I've been in Camelot a couple times. I really love it because it was one of my. It's based on one of my favorite, you know, childhood stories. Oh yeah, you yeah. Know, the Sword and the Stone. This is a new a new book by Aaron Sorkin. He's actually his undergraduate degree was in musical theater. Oh. <laughs> who knew that <laughs> he kind of strayed from that for a he while did very much but you know theater you know he says theater is his first love so it's interesting uh, Dakin uh I've spent some time uh you know, diving into uh Shakespeare spoken here I'm fascinated by uh the book uh it, I I believe I'm reading uh the fourth edition of the book um oh, oh you you need an update <laughs> oh oh yeah okay I'm up to, I think I'm up to seven now six or seven wow 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 it's I mean it is it's an impressive book and it's an amazing step-by-step -step journey into how to approach Shakespeare I recommend it to all our listeners the first question I have is you talk about meaning versus sense I think that's a good place for us to start this conversation well, Jim if you don't mind I'm going to jump in here yeah yeah, yeah and sure. I'm going to I'm going to rewind um okay. Okay. Dakin, what was the what was the motivation, the impulse for writing this book and then to continue to revise it through seven editions? Well, I started writing it uh, when I was a, a professor at uh, Cal State. It used to be called Cal State Hayward. Now it's called Cal State East Bay. And uh, actually, somebody asked me to go into a, a local high school and uh, help the high schoolers uh, learn how to read Shakespeare interestingly enough. So I thought, well, I should put together a few points about this. And it was a little slim little volume, which had my, my own ideas about it from having worked uh, as an actor and as a dramaturge and as, as a scholar for about 10 years. And um, I found out and I, I began to read widely in other people's uh, handbooks and uh, theories about how to do it and realized that they didn't have much to do with how I'd been doing it, you know, for 10 years or so. So I, I just started putting my thoughts down and, and every 10 years or so I do a new edition because I learn 
so much more, uh, both from doing it and from research. I actually read everything ever written about the what's called prosody, the, the task of not just writing poetry, but speaking it aloud, basically. And uh, the newer editions are full of all my book reviews, which are among the bitchiest things you'd ever read, I would have to say. <laughs> I feel like I feel like a certain personality is emerging here. So when you first set out to write this book, you were motivated because your views on acting Shakespeare were divergent from most of what you were reading. Yes, have you found that that divergence has increased in this in the last decades, or has yes, there been yes, a convergence with other? Enormously, it has increased enormously. I don't think Shakespeare, the actual art of Shakespeare speaking. Is, is being taught very well, both in conservatories and in basically in acting schools and, and uh, even in universities and high schools. It's just not, it's not being taught well, I think. It's um, what I call uh, uh, rehearsal room encouragements. You, you will find that uh, th there are some great directors and some uh, great teachers out there who, when you get them in a rehearsal room, they can really find a way to motivate the students to do the Shakespeare well. But when they try to put those encouragements down into some sort of coherent theory or even praxis about it, it starts to fall apart because it's, it's full of vague and sort of impressionistic ideas about what Shakespeare is. And the vocabulary is very unstable. Uh, about what it is they talk about the beat you know the beat or the heartbeat or all that sort of stuff and they kind of go yeah but let, let, and and they propose wildly um inaccurate theories about how the tradition of acting shakespeare was passed down from generation to generation and they invent what i call a bunch of uh, falsisms that is to say rules that everybody needs to follow that make no sense at all when you finally examine them so i've gotten crankier as I got older, but that's why it takes me seven editions to get. And then also I, did, I find out, I learn things. So I, I try to incorporate the new learning into the, into the book as it goes along. These falsisms that you have identified, could you give us an example? Uh, never stress a pronoun in Shakespeare, there's one. Uh, always pause at the end of a line, there's one. Never pause in the middle of a line, there's one. Uh, every line is iambic, there's one. Um, just find the IMs and you'll find the meaning. Uh, there's one. Uh, there are no caesuras in Shakespeare. There's one. There are no spondees in Shakespeare. There's one. Uh, it's, they go on forever. And my rule is there are no never, ever, always rules in Shakespeare except that one, that there are no never, ever, always rules in Shakespeare. Every, every, there, there are general approaches to Shakespeare, but each text has to be taken on its own. A lot of the handbooks that I found were using texts from Romeo and Juliet, for example, to explain how poetry works in the Winter's Tale. You can't do that. Shakespeare developed his verse style over the course of 20 years. And what you learn from Romeo and Juliet cannot be applied to the Winter's Tale in terms of prosody, in terms of his manipulation of the of the decasyllable, as I call it. Yeah. Where is a student to begin to approach Shakespeare? If we're if if the first well, rule of teaching that, Shakespeare I, I is to okay. is to avoid making generalizations, where is a student to no, begin? No, it's not. You can make generalizations, but you can't make you can't make rules. 
rules that somehow bind always because rules that you that might work in an early play won't work in a late play rules that might work for speeches which are um, organized by the speaker may not work well for those which are being driven by subtext or passion or you know or confusion you can't make rules like that but you always search search for the meaning for me meaning drives everything let me give you a quick example say you'll find the rule says just find the i am stress the i am syllables and the meaning will become clear in order to know what syllables in a line to stress you have to understand what the line means so you can't find the meaning by looking at the iams you find the stresses by looking at the meaning you've got to start always with meaning and and then you have to move beyond meaning to what i call sense which is the meaning as expressed in the actual sensible words that Shakespeare himself wrote, not the paraphrases. I think paraphrasing is a great exercise and you should paraphrase so that you can say, oh, this is what it means in my, my now my early modern, late modern English. I see what that line means now. Sense is the combination of meaning and the actual physical sensation of the words themselves as they exist, you know, in, in the vibrating air. So I talk about using language and feeling the words in your mouth and the vibrations and yeah. how that can affect you as the speaker of, of Shakespeare, because he's yeah. using that in his tradition. It, that's essentially what you're talking about in terms of um, sense. Yes, sense. It's, it's, it's the sensation of the word. I'll give you a really quick example. I, I remember hearing one teacher say, uh, you can never pause in a line and you can never change the tempo in a line. And I thought, I don't know if that, that makes sense. There's a, there's a famous line that, that Macbeth says uh, about Duncan now that he's dead and, and Macbeth is not feeling very well about being king. And he says, Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Now, so there's a metaphor life is a fever. When the fever breaks, you sleep well. So death is the breaking of the fever after which death is asleep. That's the metaphor. That's the driving metaphor of that. But the sense of the line is what happens in a fever? You shiver. What happens when you sleep? You don't shiver. What happens when you have a fever? You're, you're like this. And when you're not, when you're, when the fever breaks, you're like that. So after life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. The first half of the line uses all the Fs and Vs to create the sensation of v -v 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 -v. And then the last three words with the long vowels and the liquid consonants creates the feeling of sleeping, the fever having broken. You have to change the tempo in the middle of that line. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. So you get the you get the almost onomatopoeic feel of the meaning through the sensation of having to speak the line with those, you know, labia dentals at the very beginning. I'm sorry, I'm using technical language here, but you know what I mean. We love the, technical language. The Fs and the Vs of look at how many there. After life's fitful fever. It's you know. Six or seven in a row. And then he sleeps 
well. It's just, it's amazing that he incorporates so much meaning into the sound of the word. Not just the meanings of the words, but the sounds of the words have meaning as well. And so, so what you're doing is you're finding, you're, you're starting with meaning. You have to figure out what you're saying and why you're saying it. Figure out what you're saying with such specificity. And I mean, not just, you, you have to know, know what the words mean, what they meant to him at that time. Even if the audience won't get it, you have to know that. You have to know what the syntax means, how the words were put together. If there are some weird syntax from from the 1600s or the 1700s you have to understand it you have to understand what he's saying there then you have to understand obviously any contextual there are some words that are like huge windows onto whole worlds if he says the word grace if he says the word sin you know we've sort of lost the richness of those words so you have to recover what that is but most important for the actor you have to do all that other acting kind of work. What do I want? Where am I coming from? Where am I going? Who am I talking to? What do I want from that person? What, do I, what did that person just say to me? You have to go through all that sort of stuff. Then you finally got them. Then you finally got both the meaning and the, and now you'd say, now it's what I say. What am I saying? Why am I saying it? Why am I saying it the way I'm saying it? And that's the, that's the third one. Why am I saying the way and why I'm in poetry? I'm now using words specifically to for so the sense can capture the richness of that meaning, and that's the, that's the next step. So this may be an oversimplification, but what I think I hear you saying is that there there are basically three three legs to the stool, and one of them might be uh, well, one has to intellectually investigate the text. Absolutely. Another leg might be that one has to experientially investigate the language. And then a third leg might be one has to investigate how to perform the piece yes. and, and in, the in order that, to, yeah. In the middle of that is also you have to uh, investigate the context in which the speaker is speaking. The history up to that point, what he expects or she expects from the future, What's driving the what's driving the speech? Sometimes the the person's brain is driving the speech. Sometimes the person's heart or gut is driving the speech. You got to decide what that is. You know, some speeches are in the speaker's control, and some speeches are not in the speaker's control. That's a really that's a really good point, and, and it's very interesting as as an actor of Shakespeare. That contextual information do you do you look for it in the text? Um, do you look for it in the in the history of the plays, the way they were written and what was happening uh, in the times always, in which they're always, set? Or? Always first in the text, treating the text as a script, treating the text as a blueprint for a performance. And as to say, always uh, um, placing your character inside the story and placing your character's speech inside this actual scene in which the scene is taking place. In which the speech is taking place. So I, yeah, I stay, I stay really married to the text, really married to the text. I, I don't, I don't necessarily look at traditions of how a speech was done by great actors. Uh, though I do like to like to know that, you know, but I stay as close as I can inside the text and to the language, the actual language in which it's spoken. And and I treat them as conversations. 
These are not speeches. They are conversations, either with another character on stage or with oneself or with the audience. But they are meaning delivery systems. I am trying to communicate something to somebody. Sometimes I'm communicating it to myself. Sometimes I'm communicating it to another person. Why am I talking to them? Why am I talking to myself? Why am I talking to the audience? Some of these are sort of dramatic and some of them are more theatrical or meta-theatrical when you're talking to an audience, you know, when you're working something out. Could we take a, a look at the piece that you've chosen to share with us today? and see how some of these ideas might play out in the speech from Hamlet. This is one of my favorites because my theory is Hamlet is a play about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about, it's about acting. After the first player has done his Hecuba speech, and which is a very odd, very formalistic, almost, you know, the prosody is so old fashioned and almost kind of ranting a little bit, somewhat what they call Fustian. But nonetheless, it was very moving because it's not a great speech, but okay. Hamlet seems impressed by this speech, but not particularly troubled by it. And he talks and has a nice conversation with Polonius and has fun with the players. And, they walk up and then suddenly he's alone and sort of, what, what is going on here? Is it not monstrous? He says, he says, is it not monstrous that this player here, it, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage want, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit and all for nothing, for Hecuba. Well, it's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her. What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorant and abase indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Okay, I, I, I love this speech as part of, a, part of a longer speech, but the important thing is there are key words that we have to really understand. Monstrous, of course, means unnatural. This should not be happening. This does not make rational sense. A fiction, a fiction, something made up. So it's not a fact. It's not a reality. A dream of passion, which is kind of interesting. It's like one of those hyper-realistic, hyper-vivid dreams in which the emotions you feel in the dream feel so real to you and yet they have no basis in reality, could force, and here's the big one, could force his soul so to his own conceit. Now, there's a couple of, of, of good words. Soul, we all know, we think we know what that means. But in fact, for Shakespeare, soul was a very technical term, and it meant the thing about human nature which runs everything, the source of all human activity, Everything that eventually the body did was engineered or motivated by the soul, which existed throughout the body, whole through the body and whole in every part of the body. It really, it really was a technical philosophical term for the prime mover of the body, basically. So to his own conceit. Now for us, conceit means overweening pride, but for Shakespeare, it meant a complex imaginative 
idea that could sort of control a poem. It's a strong image, completely made up, somewhat inappropriate, but it seems to control the entire linguistic experience. So that's what a conceit is. And he says he's forcing his soul so to his own conceit that from her working, who's she? Who's her? Her working. Soul was anima in Latin, feminine. So her is the soul. Oh, there's the secret now. Since the soul controls everything the body does. But this is not a reality that the soul is reacting to anymore. The player is forcing the soul to react to his imaginative uh, idea so that the body will then respond with the appropriate physical manifestations that it would have if it were real. Yes, yes, this is Shakespeare anticipating Stanislavski, basically. The player so constructs in his imagination a specific reality that the soul can only respond to it by producing the exact same physicalizations that it would if it were real. Remember the first time I finally, I was reading the speech over and I thought, well, what is this speech? Then I went to her, who is her? Who is her? What does that mean? And then he went, oh God, he's talking about the soul. Well, what's a conceit? Oh, it's a, a, an imaginary circumstance, a very complex and controlling imaginary circumstance. And you, you make your soul believe it, that it's real. And you don't try to cry on stage. You don't try to break your voice on stage. You don't try to look, you don't try to lose the color in your face on stage because you can't do that persuasively. Only the soul can do that persuasively. So you got to convince the soul at some weird level, at some monstrous level, at some unnatural level that what's happening to you is real and then the body will respond. That's, I mean, that is pure, pure Stanislavski right there. So what, what you've just done for us is you've analyzed the text for meaning, and now you've pointed at the next step, which is forcing the soul to experience the text. Yeah, yeah. Right, to experience the text and be able to express this using the body. Yeah, yeah. So what would your next step be after, after meeting? You say you look for the sense. So what are some examples of the ways that this text would give you some clues about the sense? The model of the iambic pentameter, the model of the, what I call blank verse or the Shakespearean line, which I don't actually believe is pure iambic pentameter. I think uh, it's second generation. It's the mix. It's the DNA of the iambic pentameter mixed with the DNA of Shakespeare's understanding of how human Human, human linguistic behavior. So he starts analyzing and follows pretty closely the rhythms of the I'm Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, that's not too, you know, I mean, we would say, is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion? So the actual stresses that we would do are perhaps a little bit stronger and fewer per line, but it's okay when you're first starting. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit? Now, 
could force his soul so to his own conceit. But you can't do an I am on the two. You can't go so to. The stresses now begin to cluster. Could force his soul so to his own conceit. That's where one of the important linchpins of the speech is. By making a spondy or a reverse trophy there in the middle of that line and having the slight rhyme echo there of soul so, you're calling attention to that line. You would ruin the meaning of the line by doing the sense wrong. Could force his soul so to his own conceit. And you notice that that creates a kind of a little peak there in the middle of that line. It's what they call a speech juncture. When you put two stresses together, there's a tiny little beat between them. Could force his soul so to his own conceit. So it's kind of like that from her working, and you got to stress the her so that the audience hears they're still talking about the soul. All his visage want, that from her working, all his visage want is pretty iambic, but you probably want to spend a little time on her working. Tears in his eyes, there's a reversal. Distraction is aspect, a broken voice, and then here comes another cluster, and his whole function suiting, and now we get our first sort of feminine ending, with forums to his conceit and all for nothing. And we get our first caesura there in the middle line. Then we get a short line for Ekiba. So now he's reaching the point where he's no longer just analyzing, but reacting emotionally to it. And the, the, the strictness of the iambic decasyllable is starting to sort of get flexible, starting to get rid. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? Now we start getting repetitions and reversals. It starts getting more interesting rather than analytic. It's getting kind of passionate that he should weep for her. Another caesura, what would he do? And an entirely monosyllabic line. That he should weep for her. And notice the second half of the speech now, which is about what would he do if he had the cue for passion, starts in the middle of a line. Normal iambic pentameter, you would think the end of one line and the beginning of the next is the best place to shift the theme and to take another theme. But here it happens in the middle of the line. For Hecuba, what's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her? What would he do had he? And then there's probably, there's a comma after the do, but I think I would go right through that. I would bust right through that. What, what would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? And suddenly we have a sentence and a phrase that sort of goes over two and a half lines. And now he would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad. There's a little double. You can't go make mad the guilty and appall the free. Make mad the guilty and appall the free. Confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. And then it falls back into sort of normal iambic. So there's, it has a kind of a musical structure. And when there's a line that carries a stronger emphasis, the rhythm will force you to speak that line non-iambically or at least to challenge the strictness of the decasyllable. That's all very technical, but interestingly enough, that is now what, what, what I hope happens for a good Shakespearean actor is that when they're young, they do this kind of work. So that after 20 years, this becomes second nature. 
they are now speaking Shakespeare as if it's their native tongue. They've done enough analysis, you know, when you're first learning to speak or when you're first learning to write, you have to, you have to analyze what you do. You have to learn how to do it. You have to learn about topic sentences and development, three paragraph and correct grammar and syntax. But if you do enough of it and you hear enough of it, it becomes second nature. Shakespeare becomes your second language, basically. I, I talk to my students about, it's like driving a car. So in the first six months when you're driving a car, you're thinking nothing but about driving the car. You're paying especially attention to the road. If it's a, especially if it's a shift, especially yeah. if it's manual yeah. transmission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so clutch and brake. And... It was like, God, you know, and then yeah. your yeah. feet or hands are just doing it on their own. And then, uh, yeah, and then a year later, not only are you doing it on your own, but you're driving better than when you were thinking about driving. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is rehearsal room stuff that I'm talking about. This is this is not yet acting. This is like reading the text for the for the clues. Because my my theory is that Shakespeare wrote for the actors, and he didn't put stage directions in parentheses. He put them in the poetry, and that's what you have to do. And he, and and this is truer the later in his the later in his career he got, you know, he was kind of showing off and he was kind of a young, brash playwright early on. And uh, some of the language is technically a little bit too, pro too, too precious, you know, but once he got past Merchant of Venice, Merchant of Venice for me is the sort of peak stylistic Shakespeare. And then he really began to push the, push the envelope, really began to test the limits of the iambic pentameter. So, so if a bad or uninspired or lazy actor were sitting in your class, let's 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 say Bottom the Weaver came to sit in your class the very first day, okay. he, he might he might hear what you the way you started this interview and say, "Well, Dakin Matthews says that there are no hard and fast rules respecting <laughs> rhetoric and and verse, so I may as well not learn them." But he would be very much mistaken. Right, you have to learn how language is structured. You have to learn how poetry is structured, but you can't apply then that knowledge to each, uh, to, to each, uh, each speech that you come across as if it's like some sort of ruler and everyone's got some sort of, you know, Procrustean bed where everything has to be the same, the same length. You can't do that. Shakespeare's language is Protean rather than Procrustean is what I would say. Well, I yep. love those words and I don't know what they mean. Well, Proteus was a shapeshifter. So you never could quite get a hold of him. You'd think you'd have him and he'd change to a different shape. Procrustus insisted that all of his guests had to sleep in exactly the same size bed. So he would cut their feet off if they were too tall. <laughs> I got into a big argument, not an argument, but a big debate with my colleague about end stopping, which is now again, sort of coming oh, around yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and being taught a lot. And I completely disagree with it. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say completely. I think it can be effective. Well, a great actor can end stop and make you believe that it's worthwhile, but it's it's a it's a completely fake rule. To, yeah, it it doesn't exist. It, it you you can sort of justify it in the first maybe five plays. You know where most of the lines are in fact end stop. It, 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 English was struggling with its prosody, with its, with its how to write poetry. Um, they never, they, they no longer quite understood what 
Chaucer was doing, who wrote iambic pentameter, but because it was Middle English, certain syllables were sounded differently from how they were in, in early modern English. So they, so they, they, they knew Chaucer was great, but they couldn't figure out how he did it. And so the, around the early 16, uh, 1500s, the poets decided that iambic was, was a pretty good start. And pentameter was particularly good because it couldn't break it in the middle and have the same thing on both sides. You know, it wasn't like tetrameter where you could do boom, 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 boom. If you break an iambic line in the middle, you're going to get three beats on one side and two on the other. It's just, it's going to be unequal. There's going to be three and three and two or you know, something like that. So the line had a certain length and integrity. Six syllables, the hexameter was a little bit too long for English. So they settled on this pentameter and they decided that iambic was kind of a nice rhythm, close or associated to how English language tended to go because of the use of the article and the use of prepositions. So their first job was, let's fit English accents to an iambic form. That meant you had to fit the monosyllable, uh, the polysyllables just so, you know, the polysyllables had to be on certain feet because polysyllables have accents. Monosyllables don't have accents. So you got to decide where to slip the monosyllable so that it can be accented or not accented to follow the iambic form. But the early attempts at English prosody of the early modern age were basically to fit the accents to the iambic mold. And that Force his soul so to his own conceit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that worked for a while. But it turned out that it tended to get a little monotonous. It tended not actually to catch the true rhythms of spoken English. It tended, which is a little bit more variable than that, a little bit more flexible than that. Well, what I find really interesting about that is that not only, particularly as we get later into Shakespeare, not only is he mimicking the way people speak, there are a lot of times that he's mimicking now the way people think. You say to yourself, what's the impulse behind a speech, when a person is speaking, what's the impulse? And I say, if you imagine that all Shakespeare monologues and soliloquies exist on a spectrum, on one end is intellect, on the other end is passion. And the speech will locate somewhere, there, there will be speeches that are completely controlled by the intellect of the speaker. And those speeches are generally marked, they are often rhetorically well-organized. They are usually balanced. They're pretty iambic. A lot of times they're end-stopped. They have longer sentences and very clever conceits. Claudius's, though, though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green. That's an example of one of those completely prepared, intellectually, rigorously structured speech. At the other end are speeches where the actor is not in control, where the character is not in control, that things are pumping up from his gut or from his heart or from her imagination that make the speaker unable to organize the speech rhetorically. And so it moves in, in waves that are not particularly predictable. You gotta figure out where your speech is on that spectrum and whether it's actually staying where, where it's put, 
Many speeches will always stay where they're put. Others will always be passionate and, and you can't pin them down. You can't pin, and others will start with a great deal of intellectual construction and then lose their way. Others will start in confusion and will clarify. You have to decide what kind of journey your speech is on and uh, on that spectrum. So, so what are the impulses in Hamlet's, uh, oh, God, God, that the Almighty had not fixed his can against self-slaughter. That whole speech there is almost completely driven by subtext and by his emotion. It is completely rhetorically disorganized, self-interrupting, self-correcting, full of interjections and exclamations and ambiguities. I don't want to say this. I can't say this. It's still coming out of my mouth. Why is it coming out of my mouth? I don't want to say this. Repetitions. And then you get something like uh, um, how all occasions to inform against me, which exactly. is analyzing something and analyzing it not, you know, not rigorously, but kind of discursively and is the way the way his, his, his mind kind of works. Then you get Claudius's speech like, though yet of, who starts his speech, though yet of? <laughs> and we're still waiting with Hamlet. Oh, is that the subject? No. Hamlet, our dear brother, is that? No. Brother's death, is that the subject? No. The memory, oh, there's the subject. The mem I mean, you know, complete rhetorical control over the speech display of 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 linguistic mastery because he's trying to display that he has the right to be the king it's a fascinating speech well i i thank you for joining us and uh, i mean particularly i teach at the actor's studio which as you know is stanislavski central uh yeah. and so that marriage and that's what across, i'm invested across, in across the street from my apartment there you go uh, so maybe we'll run into each other that's 44th yep yep um, I was just there the other day. Uh, and so that marriage of Stanislavski and Shakespeare is something I'm very interested in. Oh, um, very important. Very yeah. important. I think it's, I think it's, people would just understand that. I, I know actors, some of the best actors that I have ever worked with in Shakespeare, who wouldn't have been able to understand any of the technical jargon that we, we have been using but they speak Shakespeare brilliantly because they simply do their acting homework. Right. And because they simply continually talk like they're human beings and not like they're actors. Right. You, know? right. And that's... you don't have to know the technical stuff if, you're, if you've been blessed with, and some people, it's like having perfect pitch. Some people have perfect pitch for conversation. For, for for English rhythms and English stresses and English emphases, you know, and pronunciation. Some people have that. And uh, you you will find among uh, them among some of the greatest Shakespearean actors in the world. Yeah, Dagan, those are great words to leave leave us with. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. It's been fun. And break a leg in Camelot. Thank you. I don't say that. I have bad knees. Oh. <laughs> I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to the State of Shakespeare.
Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.